I'd like to continue where we left off two evenings ago. A bit of a review and uh, some clarification. Uh, <clears throat> in thinking it over and with the help of my friends, some of what I saw was that certain burning issues that I saw really are non-issues for many people who are relatively new to the practice, that I was more, uh, I was speaking more to a certain generation, my own and maybe a few others after it, uh, and the culture of IMS and other places like it, CIMC in Cambridge. Um, so I think a little bit of explanation and clarification is needed but also whether you ever, in other words, we were, there was a, monks and going to Asia were very big. Should I become a monk or a nun? Uh, should I go to Asia? Uh, I definitely, should. there was a very important, not only learning going on there, because you couldn't get it here. There was nothing going on here. But also it was a feather in your cap. You had to go to Asia, really, uh, if, if you had a cap. <laughs> I have one tonight. Um, and people now, let's say, who are just getting interested in it, there's no romance with uh, being in a monastery in Asia or becoming a monk or a nun or any of that. Uh, you just feel a lot of stress or pain, and you hear that meditation's kind of hot out there, I and mean, maybe it'll help you. Uh, but some of the residue of the attitude that has grown out of this history, I believe, is still here and will be here, and so... Uh, what I was trying to say is that uh, prior to any of these cultural and creations, which are ingenious, all the religions, uh, the different forms we're using here, is life. And human mind is endlessly creative in creating, uh, receiving, creating, however you want to look at it, new religions, new forms, new ways of trying to come to terms with how difficult it is to be a human being with a finite life, knowing that uh, we're here for a while, but we, uh, we know we're going to die, but we don't know when. What a bad trick has been played on us. And it's true for all the people in our life as well. So what I'm trying to say is there's, there's just life. And splits like, uh, you know, they're cute and fun and have their utility, like yogi land, which is what you're in now, and then the real world, which is what you'll go back to in a little while. Well, from the perspective I'm, I was trying to suggest, uh, there's only the real world. And it's here. It's wherever you go. It, you can, how are you going to get away from it? It's granted there are certain features of this world that are, help, that are very, very helpful, designed to help us develop in certain ways. That's why this form exists. And so when we're here, there's a certain correct action so that we can benefit from what this situation provides for us. And of course, it's different than most of where we spend our life. And in that sense, it is special. But in a profound way, it isn't. But then again, it is. But it really isn't. <laughs> you figure that one out. Um, and Yogi Land isn't just here. Because the model of practice I was trying to suggest is that uh, there's a view of practice where life, learning, practice, it's the same thing. That uh, living is learning in, in action. And there are challenges wherever you go. Aren't there challenges here? You know, you've heard the groups, or you're in, I, some, there's fear that comes up. All kinds of things come up. There are certain difficulties here, and if you keep meditating, you'll see it isn't just a piece of cake. There are different challenges here. When we go home, there'll be different ones. What I was trying to suggest is an attitude that, in a sense, cuts through all of them, That is, uh, which puts a premium on learning, on paying attention to what is happening to you and to learning from what you see and hear both externally and internally. Um, 
I also want to make it clear, uh, this, is a, this is just all views and opinions, mine, of course. Um, I don't consider uh, a practice where uh, what I was strongly suggesting is, suggesting is that we have to look at how we actually live, actually, have to take a close look at how we actually live. And for each one of us, it's different. Uh, if you go home and you have a, uh, as some people do, have three children, a husband, a wife, have a full-time job, that's the world you live in, and so forth. Uh, we need a practice that doesn't uh, do damage to that, that is appropriate uh, to help us with whatever the situation is. It is not saying that uh, living as a layperson in Cambridge or wherever you live is superior to being a monk or a nun, as some of you may uh, have inferred. I- I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's been a culture going on for thousands of years. It's been refined and honed where the monastic perspective has predominated and has produced some remarkable people and teachings, and we're benefiting from some of it. And it comes from a different time and place. And here's what helped me so much. When I was in Thailand with Ajahn Mahabua before coming home, uh, he's, a, 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 well, he's dead now. He's a well-known Thai forest master. I asked him if he had any hints about when coming back. Uh, and he said, well, he just barely was never, he was never out, of the, out of Thailand. He lived mostly in the forest. I think he visited India once for a few weeks. He'd been almost in, this, in the same forest almost his entire life, and he was in his 80s when I was studying with him. Uh, and he said, I don't know. I don't know what America's like. He said, but I know a little bit about the history of, of Dharma as it's moved through different cultures. And his suggestion, I was already moving this direction, but it gave it a certain precision. What he said was, you have to be both radical and conservative at the same time. Conservative... He didn't mean politically. What he asked is, do you value the core of these teachings? I said, of course. That's why I uh, came here thousands of miles, uh, don't know the language, getting sick, not eating the food that I'm used to, and so forth. He said, so there's something worth conserving. I said, absolutely. And he said, but you're going back to a different culture. It's not Thailand. And so you have to be, you have to take into account the living conditions that, that are, are yours, I can't help you with that. And he said, if you don't, if you're not radical, meaning honoring the culture that you live in, then you actually will undermine. You won't be able to conserve what you're doing because you'll just, uh, like a parrot, just uh, repeat what you learned in Thailand, which some of which the core is universal. But if it's developed and delivered in such a way that uh, is a little bit off from the point of view of, the, of uh, let's say, where we live, then it's not going to be effective and it'll just be a cultural oddity for a while, as it was, but it won't go anywhere. So you have to take into account the living conditions that are yours. And that is one way to conserve what's valuable. Now, uh, that made tremendous sense to me. And I was doing it in a rough way already, but... What a, over the years, now, what I've done is sometimes I feel I've erred. I think most of us did at the beginning. We were too conservative, meaning we brought Asian culture here lock, stock, and barrel. We didn't know anything else. And then Asian teachers came here, and they didn't know anything else. And so we did our best, and sometimes um, we made it seem as if that is truth. But a lot of it, the core teachings are universal, in my opinion. The Four Noble Truths, uh, awareness. Is, is awareness Thai or Chinese? or Is it a man? Is it a woman? Is it uh, from Mars? Uh, the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. There's a cause to it. This cause uh, you c- can be ended, and that end comes from uh, appropriate attention to it, methods. Is that particularly Thai, Chinese, 14th century, 2nd century, 2007, 2000, whatever it is? Uh, I don't think so. Awareness is awareness. Uh, so much the core teachings, 
and that's in part why it has lasted so long in different cultures. But then on top of that, cultures do their accretions develop. What's unique to that culture, which may have been very, very helpful in that culture. Different techniques and methods, attitudes, ceremonies, rituals, and so forth. Um, So when we get here, how to protect what really is universal. It's for, for everyone, everywhere, anywhere. And if it weren't, I don't think it would be all that worthwhile. If it weren't really something that really aims squarely at a human, the human condition. So at the beginning, I think myself and many of us erred in the direction of uh, doing what we the only thing we knew how to do. We didn't have confidence. And so we just repeated patterns. Then I've swung to the other extreme, reacted, and became too radical, almost throwing out the baby with the bathwater, that extreme. And I would say, I don't know that we, you solve it once and for all, but I would say right now, I'm the most balanced I've been relative to me in terms of my own life, my own practice, and whatever small influence I have in the places that I teach. So when we take a look at where we're living, us, look, some of you... Uh, may wish to be monks and nuns, so this may not apply to you when that happens. But my guess is most of us are not. At least right now, uh, you have a life situation. And what I'm trying to describe takes is, is very much one size does not fit all. If any of you should fall in love with this practice and decide to live out your days at IMS, then you need a practice that can help you do that, and that would be fine. But if you go back to where you live and you have work and a family, or you go to school, you have parents, you have children, etc., cetera, uh, then you need a practice that uh, sincerely takes that into account, and it isn't just a cliché. Because my own observation is it can easily be. Be mindful in all situations. Very good, you do it. Uh, because we don't want to. Relationship is what drove us here, for goodness sakes. So why would we want to go back and then hear someone like myself say, that's a superb practice. It's a very deep, potentially, depending on how you use it. Uh, So what I'm also saying is that I saw this, too. Uh, Friends of mine who were monks in different Asian countries, and then the only way to... To really get free is you've got to be a monk. The rest of it is just, it's cute, but it's a waste of time. And then they disrobed, and they got married and had children. The only way to do it, you've got to really test yourself in life. And, you know, the children and the acid test, you know, sure, it's very safe when you're in those monasteries. But uh, so everyone now has got to get married and get children. Um, a little bit self-serving. So what I'm trying to say is each one of us has to figure out how to live. We have to learn how to live. And by honestly facing the conditions that make up our life. I don't know what your conditions are. So learning is what uh, I, for me, learning is what has helped me immensely. The practice is made up of techniques and forms. And you might say, well, that isn't, you know, I don't know if learning, it's more training. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And if you do enough of that, sit for 8,000 years, uh, you're going to definitely be the happiest person on the planet. There's no evidence that that's true. I haven't seen it. If you do it in that spirit, because finally the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And whether you wear robes and have no hair on your head, or you have a long beard, or you have blue jeans or uh, one robe or eat one meal or seven meals or wear high heels or wear very expensive therapeutic sandals or only only very cheap sandals because that means you're more humble. <laughs> Patches on your blue jeans, which usually tell me you come from a wealthy family. <laughs> Not always. Um, that's all fluff. Stuff. Um, let's get back to the self-knowing that Michael was getting at. Uh, for me, and I think this is particularly unique, 
to understand what the Buddha is really teaching, you have to understand your own mind, your own psyche. You can read through libraries, and what you will have is a rich collection of beautiful, brilliant words about what the mind is and about what life is. That's helpful. That's helpful. Uh, but it isn't living. You, so that in order to really understand what the Buddha is getting at, you have to get to know your mind, your heart. After all, it, it, the, the view of this teaching is that the suffering in the world, all over, war, poverty, the misuse of the environment, all that, the, the source of it is the psyche. From a Buddhist point of view, greed, hatred, and delusion. We're not using the environment or uh, relating to each other in ways that make any sense. But we keep doing it generation after generation. Well, we learn from history. I'll tell you what I've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. We learn some things. Okay, so self-knowing, and it's ing, intentionally. Self-knowledge is something that you accumulate. Maybe fill up a spiral notebook. So some of you doing that secretly in your room? The story of you and your life at IMS, you know, (laughs) chapter 23, Larry goes to a retreat, or whatever your name is. Um, That's just more of the same. Self-knowing is in the active present. That's something that you learn something in the moment. I feel my hands are cold, but... Uh, my ethnic background, I have to kind of shake, shake, so I'm in a deep conflict here. I have to shake and point, and, but I want my hands to be warm. I'll work it out. Um, you learn something in the moment, and of course, it's you are learning something about you, and it's in the midst of the action, and then out of that, the learning co- co- corrects the action. I'm going to go through some of the examples that Michael gave yesterday. I'm going to add a few. Um, And uh, so self-knowing is, uh, I don't see how we can escape it. Now, before we go into the details, self-knowing is not the same as self-improvement. It's not endlessly getting to know the self. It's getting to know the ways of the self, what what some of us call selfing the ways of the self. The truth is, self-knowing is designed to go beyond self, to put an end to self-centered living. Uh, One of the most beautiful statements of it is by Japanese master Dogen. He said, to understand Buddha Dharma, you have to understand the self. To understand the self, you have to forget the self. Interesting. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. The mind that isn't so preoccupied with itself. It's a different way to relate to life, to people, to nature, to things, to everything. Now, in the process of paying attention and learning, you learn all kinds of things, something very, many things that are very ordinary, mundane, routine, and they're fine. They're useful, of course. But the key, I, I would like to narrow it down because this is a, a Buddhist path, and I'm going to go into a particular sutta that I have found very, very helpful. I hope it's useful for you. Um, Before I uh, uh, deal with it and the the learning part, um, at one point, the Buddha held up, and many of you know this, it was in a forest with a bunch of yogis and held up a handful of leaves and said, are there more leaves in the forest, all of this forest, or just in my hand? Of course, in the forest, than your hand. He said, what I know is like all the leaves in the forest, but what I'm teaching is just what I have in my hand. Because what I'm teaching is that which is relevant. What I'm interested in doing is suffering and the end of suffering. Okay. There are other things that can be learned that are fun to learn. I'm not saying don't learn them. But in a few moments, I'm going to narrow it down. That is one aspect of learning, at least that comes from this approach, has to do with the quality of how we live and seeing how we contribute to whether our life is full of suffering or it isn't. I'm assuming that anyone who goes through what all of us have gone through to come here, 
Some of you have traveled some distance. Perhaps you had to make arrangements of work and family and so forth that you care about the quality of your life. I have to assume that. Why else would you come here? Get warm? There are better places. Cafes with computers and, you know, nice things to drink. And So I have to assume that, and I think that's what the Buddha is talking about. Um, learning. I was suggesting that a lot of what we do are techniques and methods. They're very, very helpful, but if they're done without this, without inquiry, without investigation, without an interest, uh, they can become like dead, dead weight. And uh, because a method is just what it is. It's designed to help us, but in a certain sense, it's part, it's in the middle of our life as we live it. And if we're not learning, then uh, the practice is, it can, you can get very, very calm. Let me give you a, a you know, kind of limited example. We've been doing shamatha vipassana, right? Calming and centering the mind on the breathing, or some of you are using metta, whatever. And then the instructions opened up. The instructions opened up, um, so that now we're aware of whatever is happening and we're interested. It's not just in, out, in, out, in, out. It's open to see what's going on, to learn about what's happening, to learn about ourselves. There's a very uh, old Indian teaching story where there was a king who was also a great yogi. And a person came up to him and said, I would love to, I want to be a great yogi too. Can you teach me what you know? So the king said, sure. And he said, put a pot of hot oil on the top of your head and go through every room in this large palace without spilling a drop. So this person did it, came back ecstatic, thrilled. I went through every room in the palace and I didn't spill a drop. And then the king started questioning him. Okay, what did you learn? Who's having affairs with who? Are there any? What's, who's plotting, plotting political overthrow? Uh, what's going? Any intrigue in the palace? Uh, and he went on and on. Like and the guy said, I don't know. I was just so concerned about not dropping any oil, not spilling any oil. He said, Look, now go back, go through every room of the palace. Don't spill any oil, but t- but answer these questions. You get my drift. We're the person carrying the pot. You can get pretty happy in, out, in, out, in, out, and out. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings feel free. You can, uh, and you can get very happy. You can also get happy in other ways, which are less time-consuming, but I, they're illegal. <laughs> and, and dangerous. Uh, so the learning we're talking about is learning that helps us live. Um, you probably have seen definitions. Wisdom is the art of living. And one thing I like to do, I've done more and more, I'm doing it in Cambridge, is drawing people out and ask them, is there something in your life that you just do because you love it? Maybe it's dance, maybe it's music, maybe it's painting, maybe it's cooking, photography, it doesn't really matter. Some art that you, that you love or some, something, that, um, something that you love to do because you love to do it. And, you know, people, of course, people have that. Uh, let me read you one of my favorite quotes. I like a Japanese painter named Hokusai. Uh, some of you may know him, not by his name, but uh, he has all these different views of Mount Fuji. Uh, the huge waves with little boats riding it. You just see a corner of Mount Fuji in one. Then in another one, you see Mount Fuji from this angle. There are just lots of them. They're all about Mount Fuji, but that's not what's featured. What's featured are other things. And here's what this artist had to say. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs. But all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, 
of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, insects. Its consequence, when I am 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage, and when I'm 110, everything I do, be it but a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as, as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of 75 by me, Hokusai, the old man mad about drawing. Um, well, what does this have to do with what I'm talking about? What is Rosenberg has gotten lost in some sidetrack. Uh, wouldn't it be a different world if the art of living was something that we learned to love? doesn't mean that in learning how to live, it's not that all, that everything you see is wonderful because a lot of it you see uh, clashes with images we have of ourselves when you start to actually pay attention as to how we actually live, actually. But if the project of learning how to live has such compelling interest, and I don't think anyone can give it to anyone, and you don't necessarily have it when you come here, especially if you're new. Sometimes out of practice, at least I hope so for, for you, comes a, a real loving of doing the practice. And it isn't a sort of like cut and dried meat and potatoes, I'm doing this so I can get into first stage of awakening, then from that to second stage, from there third stage, fourth. I, my goal is to be an arhant when I'm uh, whatever this guy's age was. Uh, at a certain point, if you don't really enjoy doing this, and see the value of it from inside, not because the Buddha said or friends around you say, but the whole process of practicing and of learning how to live becomes intrinsically interesting, even when a lot of what you see is unlearning, when you see mistakes in living, when you, you have to review ways in which you were living that didn't work out so well and, and, and le- feel badly about it, but learn from it. It takes courage, it takes humility, takes persistence, but wouldn't it be wonderful if at least in the educational system, if at least some of us, we really love to learn how to live? I think it would, but we're not set up that way. So uh, it's just a thought. Um, let's bring this learning uh, to, to our lives. So much time, I think I won't read from the suttas. There's one uh, teaching of the Buddha where the Buddha comes into a town and the people had good living conditions and were, uh, it would be a bit like Cambridge. They were like educated and had enough to eat and so forth. And, and they're very confused because it's uh, the, the people are the Kalamas. And they, the Buddha comes into town and they say, look, so many teachers have come through here, and they all are talking, they point to their teaching as the best, and they discredit every other teaching. And I suppose you're going to do the same thing. And we're confused, and people in Cambridge are. We, it's a real, uh, you like Tibetan Buddhism? Which kind? We have about six flavors. How about Zen? Only two or three. Theravada, not much, but it's changing. You like uh, the Vietnamese version, the Cambodian version, the Thai version, Burmese version? So people are walking around with the bulletin boards with smiling faces from every country all over the world. Oh, it's, and this is the most ancient. This is the, uh, you know, etc. And what the, what the Buddha says surprises them because what he says is don't give absolute, I'm paraphrasing, please. Don't give absolute authority over to uh, something, a teaching because it's ancient, because it's in a holy book, because of logic, because it's been reported, because, you know, in our case, because it appears on TV or it's in a newspaper, goes on and on, or because it's your teacher. Now, he doesn't say, it's not a hippie uh, freedom uh, charter, like, forget about all teaching, man, I just follow my heart. It's not saying that. We've been following our heart. That's what has brought us to this place. Because as Mahabua, one of the teachers that the three of us have had, when some American once told him that, he just broke out laughing. 
and he couldn't control him. He said, you've been following your heart? He says, that place, that cesspool full of urine and feces <laughs> and confusion? Okay, maybe overdoing it a bit because we have to work with what we have. Uh, but what the sutra also says is to take the counsel of the wise. So it's a balance. It's a balance between, but, he does, but finally, uh, well then, what, how do I know how to live? And the Buddha says, finally, you have to be the authority. Listen to the wise. For example, if you want to learn an art, a skill, cooking, let's say, um, you, you know, you get, get off, you get, maybe look, open a book and you try uh, some food and you carry out, the, you start cooking the food and then you observe the results of it. And you see, oh, I put in too much paprika or not enough of this, a little bit more of this is called for. And little by little, you refine that. So some of how we, how we learn is by, is by acting. We live something out, we observe the consequences, and we see, and through that, the learning, if it's real learning, contributes to the refinement, in our case, of our life. You know, cooking would be a better meal. And also... Uh, we take help from those people who have mastered whatever the art is. The art the Buddha is teaching, the learning the Buddha is talking about, is the skill the Buddha is talking about, is, a, is the skill of the mind. When I say mind, I mean heart too. Um, so it's the same thing. Uh, we'd be foolish not to uh, take some help from those people who perhaps have gone beyond where we are and are able to help us about how to clean out some of the suffering we have. But finally, we have to live out our own life, and we have to, what this is suggesting, the heart of it is learning from the living. And it's not one or the other. Uh, so the, the, but the challenge is coordinating these two, uh, being, uh, uh, okay, so the Buddha goes a little bit further. So take advice from the, from the counsel of the wise, but finally, you have to decide. Uh, and of course, one of the main ways in which we get stuck, and I assume, is with teachers. You know, we hand ourselves over, and there have been so many di- stories of disasters, uh, the guru things, abusive of women, of, of, ever, of disciples. You, I'm sure you all know about that. I had one teacher. Uh, he was a Vedantin, and he, um, he said... Be careful with all these teachers coming from India. He was from India. He was a, a Swami. And he said, the longer the beard, the bigger the fake. And he had a beard almost down to the floor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what the Buddha suggests is, if you do something, let's say there's a course of action, both of the mind and of speech and of action, um, before you do it, reflect, is this skillful? Skillful here means beneficial for you and for others. If it's skillful, you're reflecting, remember. You're making an educated guess in a sense. Do it. If it's unskillful or it's just skillful for you but it's going to really be very painful for other people or, or negative, destructive for other people, don't do it. That once you act, if, so if it's beneficial, do it. If it's, if it's harmful, that's unskillful. If it's beneficial, that's skillful. And that's not a bad guide because you can take whatever culture you live in and the measure is, are you suffering? What produces suffering? And what, what produces happiness? It's still not, it's not like we have a gauge or some meter that tells you objectively whether it's beneficial or not. There's still human judgment involved. How do you discern whether you because now let's say you act, and then in the course of acting, you find out even though you thought it was going to be beneficial, it turns out it wasn't. It isn't. You're in the midst of doing it. Stop. Whether it's a certain way in which the mind is functioning, or how you speak, or what you do, uh, stop. If it turns out that as you're acting, it becomes very, very clear that this acting is skillful it's beneficial, then of course follow through on it and do it. And then the Buddha finishes up even after you finish the action. Sometimes in the short run, things look very, very positive. 
But then maybe a few weeks or a little longer, you look back and you realize, I really sincerely thought that this was beneficial, both before I acted, during I acted, but now as I look back, it was not. And maybe there's remorse. It's not laying a guilt trip on us, because the remorse is good. If you feel the remorse in the service of learning, it's not to beat yourself up. It's to realize, I didn't live that way correctly. I didn't know how to live that way. And I made a mistake. And if you feel a little bit of regret, there's nothing wrong with that. But in the service of re-educating yourself, so that uh, in some, to some degree, is less likelihood of repeating it. Um, I think in the time remaining, Michael, is it okay if I go a little bit over? You know that, you know that one? <laughs> We've been doing it for however many years, right? It's a, it's a dance we do. Okay, but not tonight. Okay. <laughs> Michael gave you some examples, and I'm going to give you uh, two, and maybe that'll be enough for tonight. And I wanted to get into some examples about home, but maybe that can be the last day. It'll be even be more appropriate. How to uh, taking this into when we are back, uh, wherever you're going back to. Uh, if you recall, he talked about. Uh, the, the smoker who lived underneath him, and the smoke comes up. Okay, I'm just, I'm playing, I'm using you, Michael. You know, let's say, uh, what would be, a, I thought Michael did a, a very skillfully. There was anger, but he didn't act on it. Supposing Michael saw this, and uh, had this, uh, Michael uh, had, had this beautifully nice, finely fixed up, and then all of a sudden, just when you're about to enjoy it, uh, the toxins start coming up, and you can't live. It's, not, it's hardly livable. And you, you go for a few days, and then finally, maybe in, in a nice way, you tell the person downstairs, and they say, oh, I don't smoke. You know, and then you come up, and you remember the story. Okay. And then finally, you know, a week goes by, and you try a few more times. You talk to the daughter, and, oh, oh no, my mother doesn't smoke. And then finally, you go down, you open the door and say, listen, I wanted to, you know, and you just lace into this poor old lady who needs to smoke. And you let her have it, and you put the fear of God in her. If you don't stop smoking, you know, etc. And she's shaking. And maybe she stops smoking. But that isn't, uh, that isn't the way of Dharma. So, now it isn't also just being a doormat. So that what you, that is... If you work on your impulses that might be unskillful and you try to deliver it as skillfully as you can, sometimes it's helpful when it's delivered, not as a reaction. And the key here is this kind of learning is mainly being awake to your reactivity, which we think is spontaneity. A lot of what we call spontaneous is not spontaneity. It's mechanically conditioned, impulsive. We're very proud of it sometimes. Okay, it's not freedom. Um, so it could have been unskillful. Now, I don't know. The outcome could be anything. It could be moving out, as Michael mentioned. It could be she stops. It could be that uh, legal procedure. You know, I don't know. Um, let me go to two examples from my own family. And uh, I've intentionally picked very, very serious ones to show you that um, learning how to live uh, is, is that's its practice in action, um, and I'm gonna I'll do my best to link up the events with these teachings. Uh, when my father was about 84, 85, he developed Alzheimer's disease, and had to be uh, institutionalized. Uh, up until then, up until at least a year or two before that, he was an extremely alert person. Part of the problem with him is I couldn't get anything past him as a child. And uh, so he was very observant, very sharp. Of course, I think that he was my father. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, and then suddenly, you, come, you visit him in a nursing home, and uh, there's no sense. He's saying things that make no sense, and he's, he doesn't know who you are sometimes. Uh, he uh, uh, non sequiturs and uh, looking off into the into who knows where, and 
I started being the kind of person I am. I read up about Alzheimer's disease, and I knew a fair amount about it. And uh, all of our, my family, we all visited him as often as we could. And every time I visited him, more and more I was reading. And finally, I was relating to him. I can't speak for the rest of my family, but it took me a while, months, before I saw that there was a filter of my father, the Alzheimer's patient, uh, to some degree colored by all the technical medical stuff that I had read. And in a way, it felt it, it was it helped me a little bit. It was like secure, put him in this diagnostic category. But I also saw it, had, it was a little bit deadening, numbing, but, because I love my father, and he loved me. We didn't have a complicated relationship. Sometimes, but, you know, you outgrow that. You're not 17 forever. Uh, and it felt something was off, and it took me a while, but I, I attempted to bring the practice. I do try to bring it in whatever, to whatever I do. I don't always remember or succeed. In this case, at a certain point, I saw that I had an image, a conclusion about my father, my father, the Alzheimer's patient. It's not that I kept repeating it. It's that it infiltrated consciousness, and it was subtle and strong, and it was between the two of us, and somehow it compromised my ability uh, to love him and to relate to him in a way that felt right. Okay, now, by ordinary standards, I was putting out love, I was considerate, I was affectionate, we brought him things, all of us did. Fine, what more can you do? The bar is higher for Dharma folks. If you're going to be a Vipassana yogi, the bar is a little higher. Because what I saw was, yes, I'm doing my best, but I saw how I was limiting myself without realizing it. So that my actions from a certain point of view were unskillful because they were not as beneficial as they might have been. From an ordinary point of view, they were. Like, he's diseased, you have, you're doing the best you can, just, you know, don't get, just accept it. But when you see more clearly, in a sense, you have more responsibility because you have fewer outs and escapes. And what I saw was, this is why it's not good between us. And once I saw it, it fell away. And suddenly, there was a much more intimate connection again between us, different than how it had been for the first part of our life together. But there was warmth and love, and he felt it. It was so obvious. And his behavior was changed, at least not only towards me, all of us. Uh, and even though he was not making sense more than half the time, you could feel that there was some change. And awareness helped me do that. In other words, I learned from living, and that was skillful. And so it was uh, Dharma practice helped me. That's what learning to live is, is what I'm saying. And it's ongoing. It's not like you get it right away, because months went by, and it was probably a gradual building up of feeling something is uh, off here, until finally I could see what was off. And then in the seeing, it lost its power over me. And then the seeing was much more clear. And so the quality of our seeing, let's say if the Buddha leaves us with this guideline for living, that is, are you living in a way that's skillful or unskillful, is very dependent on the clarity of your seeing. And to begin with, we have to do the best we can. Mahabud, to the contrary, you have to use your, follow your heart as best you can or, or see with it. You can't wait until you're perfect. But as the practice matures, your ability to discern matures, your discrimination between what is skillful and unskillful, which is sometimes gray. And it's an ongoing commitment to learning, and there's joy in it. You know, children love to learn until the school system gets hold of them. And, you know, is there something you love to do? And you do it because you love it. Wouldn't it be nice if this process of learning, the art of living, was not a cliche, but, and even when it's painful as to what you see, there's a certain kind of fulfillment in it that you're living in the best way you know how. You really are related to it. Uh, my father was very, very generous prior to his Alzheimer's. Even when we had very little money, and this was a problem for my mother, 
Uh, he was always paying for everyone and putting tokens in so everyone would go on the train and treating people. And my mother was, how is she going to put food on the table? And, and he was the big shot, you know, taking care of everything. He didn't care about that. It was my mother's job. And I, I could see both. But he was very generous, very big heart. And suddenly he becomes a, a skinflint. He's in the hospital and he, he, he tells all of us, and he said, uh, uh, I reach back in my back pocket to, for some money, and all I feel is, excuse me, my ass. He said, um, can you give me 10 bucks? And the nurse is there, and she says, don't give it to him. It'll just be, it'll, he'll lose it, it'll go down the toilet, it'll be washed in the laundry. It's a complete waste. And like an idiot, I believed it. I didn't. And my, you know, we all nodded. My, you know, right, we just, as if we didn't hear him. A few weeks went by, and then again, I paid attention, and I saw, uh, uh, why don't I give it to him? Well, because it's a waste of money. Uh, you know, from one point of view, yes, but this helps you think out of the box, so to speak. You realize, who said? The nurse? Sure, she means well, but I gave him $10. My family were upset because they, as I did, sided with the nurse and an attendant who said, it's a complete waste. You just threw $10 away. I gave it to him. It made him so happy. He was just so happy. And then and I said, look, this is $10. This is working better than all these drugs that they're giving him. So that, and then uh, one more, finally, and then I'll, you can go and walk. My father was very funny. He had a very good sense of humor. And he brought that into the nursing home, but it made no sense. He would just go, he would say something, and he enjoyed it, and he'd laugh, and we'd be sitting there, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it just wasn't funny, because it was a non sequitur, it was confusing. And so weeks went by where we just would have this, you know, squeamish little smile on our face, because it wasn't funny, and who's he to laugh at all that? It makes it isn't funny. It should be funny, or you don't laugh. Who said? Same thing, all through awareness. It, it, it's like a, a, a bunch of bricks sort of fall apart, and I started to see the situation much more freshly than the way it was defined. And so he would start telling something funny, enjoy it, and I would just laugh along with him. It may, and then at the end of it, uh, my, I remember my mother asked me, she said, did you get the joke that, that, that Dad gave? And I said, no, not at all. She said, but you were laughing. I said, so what? Is, where's, the, where's the Lord that said you have to really understand the joke to laugh? And did you see how good it made him feel? He said, yeah. So, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, the applications are endless. And bring it into your practice here. Some of you, you know, uh, you miss a few breaths and, oh, I can't do it. It's just terrible. I'm a rotten yogi. Everyone else is calm, you know. Uh, are you doing that outside too? In other situations or you just get infected as you came to IMS? Uh, the, the practice is to take a look at that. Let it go. Unlearn it. See what it really is. You're really, you're harming yourself. If you make I can't do it, you can't do it. It's over. So the seeing and the learning go together, and the living, it's, you can't separate it. And I would say this is the heart of what the Buddha is getting at. It's not a bunch of dead principles. It has to be brought into the fire of your own life, tested, and it improves the quality of living. And that's why we're doing this stuff. The sitting, we can go into that too. The sitting contributes to it in a big way. Coming to places like IMS, which are safe, quiet, where we have minimal, uh, very little responsibility, this is a, a, a wonderful place to hone these skills. But don't see this as standing for the whole trip, for your whole life. Dip it in bronze and my, my uh, February in, uh, at IMS. Uh, this is one invaluable part of your life. And then when you leave here, let it go. And then keep the, this, the interest and the learning going in wherever you go next. And because life is teaching us lessons all the time. The curriculum's all set. 
it's depending on how you look at it, it's either free or it's the highest price you have to pay for anything. Just no one's signing up for the course. So please sign up. It's free. Let's look at it that way. It's a little bit better to look at it that way. Uh, Okay, I'm not down on monks or nuns. They have a very good practice. Uh, I don't think just lay people, now this is the new savior. You just got to have 10 children and get work three jobs, and that way you'll get away. I don't don't feel that at all. And not only that, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the monastic thing reasserts itself again. And, you know, 25 years, suddenly it becomes powerful in our culture again. I don't know. I'm just dealing with the facts. The facts are we work, we have relationship. We've got to take that seriously and let the practice meet it fully and not just touch it obliquely uh, with a few cliches. Oh, no, you're going to keep sitting there? (laughs) Can't I just sit and reflect on what I just said? Rest a little for a few seconds? What? Oh, okay. Good, Michael. Why don't we sit for a couple of minutes? (laughs) 